Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it is a great thrill to see so many of you here this evening uh, on this very cold day for Jill Lepore's talk. Uh, tonight's program is presented to complement a wonderful exhibition which I hope many, if not all of you, have seen on our second floor, Superheroes in Gotham. It's a wonderful show that really traces the, um, not only the adventures, but the invention of the superhero uh, along the lines of the trajectory of New York City's own history. Uh, tonight's program, The Secret History of Wonder Woman, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity in enabling us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. Um, we have uh, several of our trustees in the audience tonight, and I would like to recognize and thank them above all. Our chair, Pam Schaffler, thank you so much, Pam, for your leadership and everything that you do here. And also Glenn Louie and Eric Wallach. Um, I'd also like to thank all of the members of our Chairman's Council who are in attendance. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for purchase in our museum store, which is to my left. We are thrilled to welcome Jill Lepore, the David Woods Kemper, 41 Professor of American History at Harvard University, back to the New York Historical Society. Professor Lepore is also a staff writer at The New Yorker. Her books include Book of Ages, a finalist for the National Book Award, New York Burning, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and The Name of War, the winner of the Bancroft Prize. In 2014, Professor Lepore was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and to the American Philosophical Society. Her latest book, The Secret History of Wonder Woman, is the winner of New York Historical's own 2015 American History Book Prize. As always, before we begin, I would like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And tonight, no photography, please, is allowed. And now, please join me in welcoming Professor Lepore to the stage. Thank you. Louise for that wonderful introduction and thanks everyone for coming out on such a chilly evening to hear talk about Wonder Woman. I want to give a special round of applause for the people in the audience who are in costume. Maybe you haven't noticed them. <laughs> but I just think that's so excellent. It just kind of takes a lot to dress up as Wonder Woman on a January evening. Um, I <laughs> Yes, we'll, we'll have, a, we'll have a, a, like a parade of Wonder Woman costumes afterwards. Um, wouldn't that be good? Yeah, I'll see if people come up there. Um, I really, tonight I want to talk about the history of Wonder Woman and tell you how I came across this bizarre and unusual story. And I'm so happy to be able to do that here at the New York Historical Society, which embodies so much of what I really care about about history, and that is the sort of surprising wonder of the past, how immediately and urgently it speaks to us today, how seeing objects and being in their presence is important for how we lead our lives, and especially here so vitally in this city. 
the work that the Historical Society does is something I'm just, I'm just so pleased to be a part of through this wonderful speaker series. So, but <clears throat> I, I think about the distinguished speakers who've been here talking about August, you know, US foreign policy history and politics, and I'm gonna now talk about Wonder Woman. <laughs> uh, yay! I'm going to begin by confessing that I came to this project completely backwards. I, I have never in my life been a Wonder Woman fan. I'm sort of embarrassed to say. When I was a kid, my only acquaintance with Wonder Woman was this great television show starring the great Linda Carter, which was on when I was a kid, uh, starting in 1975. I'm just playing the theme music here to get everybody in the Wonder Woman vibe. you got to listen to the lyrics a little bit. It's like an unparalleled thing. But what I just want to say, when I was a kid, the, the thing I watched was <laughs> the man from Atlanta. So like my brother watched this show, let me just say, and I watched this show. We are the straightest kids in America. So um, because remember, like Patrick Duffy had the little like orange Speedo with the, I loved that show. Anyway, I just kind of didn't really get the Wonder Woman thing. I mean, I know people did in the 1970s. So, I came, I'll talk a little bit about how I came across this project, but I want to just kind of get our feet wet with who Wonder Woman even is. Wonder Woman is a superhero who's created in 1941 as a publicity stunt by what would become DC Comics. And the publicity stunt was they had just established the Justice Society, and they did a kind of reader's poll. This is right after public opinion polls are formed in 1935. George Gallup starts doing public opinion polls. And DC Comics wants to do a public opinion poll to ask whether Wonder Woman should be allowed to join um, the Justice Society. Now, the Justice Society is a league of superheroes. It's important to remember that comic books themselves are new in the 1930s. The first comic books are from the 19, 1933. There are comic strips before that, but the books themselves, strips pasted together on cheap newsprint, cost a dime. Kids could buy these things anywhere with money that they had of their own. The first superhero comic book is Superman in 1938, followed by Batman in 1939. And then Wonder Woman makes her debut in 1941. The thing with comic books was, like all new forms of media that are marketed specifically to children, parents freaked out about them. So, and they really wanted to, like, they didn't even understand, they couldn't even like, read them. Like, what is this slang? What does it mean when he says that? Um, but there were also certain political fears about comic books, much akin to the fears that we have about uh, Snapchat at the moment, say, or you know, the video game fears of the 80s, maybe in the 90s, which kind of continue on today. Um, but Superman looked to many people by 1939 in particular like fascist propaganda. He comes from a master race that's better than us. Um, Batman, when he first started, wielded a gun. And uh, American political commitment to gun regulation was at a very high point in the 1930s. The Federal Firearms Act was passed in 1934 and the National Firearms Act in 1938 and in 1939, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, upheld both as constitutional because regulating gun ownership did not violate the Second Amendment. <laughs> was like, I'm just now, I'm dating you. I'm putting <laughs> This was back in that ye olde time. Um, but anyway, Batman had to give up his gun because it was so controversial that he had a gun. And that's why Bruce Wayne got this, got this origin story about how he had seen his parents shot to death and he becomes very anti-gun. But so the comic book publishers are really 
struggling with what to do with the public criticism of comic books. They're too violent, there's guns in them, there's sort of fascist overtones to these stories. And Wonder Woman is created and is marketed as an antidote to the violence and the hyper-masculinity of comic books. And so the way it's sort of, but it's done as a stunt, because the comic book publisher's like, well, would this work or would this not work? Um, so they send out, they do this poll, they ask kids, like, should Wonder Woman, even though a woman, be allowed to join the Justice Society? And then they do these things like reader surveys, like ask which comic book hero they want to join the Justice Society. So this is a sample ballot, which I show you just because I believe it was designed by the Florida Election Commission. <laughs> Okay, Wonder Woman's face is like twice as big as these other like, like D-list losers, and then she's twice on the ballot. Like you get, like she's gonna give you the free comic book if you said. Anyway, she wins by huge <laughs> surprise. Um, and one of the fun things about working on this project is, you know, I'm a I'm an archive rat. I love working in archives, and most comic book historians are not really, uh, they're more like fans. They're not really archive rats, but. Um, so I found the, the, the tallies to this poll in the, in, the, in, the, in the archives of the Brooklyn College Library. It's a little bit hard to see here, but um, it's the tallies divided down by boys and girls. And, and there's these six girls who vote against Wonder Woman joining the Justice Society. And you're like, who are those girls? Um, <clears throat> so she's, she wins. She gets elected to join the Justice Society. She joins the Justice Society. And it's not the great triumph for feminism in 1942 that you would expect because she becomes the secretary. I don't know if you guys can see. <laughs> um, but it's a huge big deal that Wonder Woman is, she's this big success. She's a comic book sensation. She has 10 million readers almost instantly. She gets her own comic book. She doesn't appear just in other comic books, but she gets her own title comic book in July of 1942. And there's a huge press release um, and a big publicity boon. To, to promote the new comic book. The first issue contains this great page uh, describing the men behind Wonder Woman. So this is a chance to introduce them to you here. When, when Wonder Woman started in 1941, she was published under the name Charles Moulton. And, and in fact, I think still technically is published under the name Charles Moulton as a pseudonym. Um, and when, the, when she got her own comic book, there was a huge press release that said, the secret author of Wonder Woman is now revealed. He's world famous consulting psychologist with three degrees from Harvard. William Moulton Marston, and here he is, sitting on the lower left-hand side, this heavyset guy. Uh, with the short sleeves, there's um, Harry G. Peter, he's the artist. This uh, younger guy here with the jacket is Shelley Mary, he's the editor, he also edited Superman and all the Justice League stories. And then M.C. Gaines over here, uh, the heavyset man on the right, is the, is the publisher. Um, so there, there's this big hoopla about the publication of Wonder Woman and its release. And the press release, though, makes very specific what we would say, uh, we would certainly call feminist claims for Wonder Woman. Uh, Wonder Woman was conceived by Dr. Marston to set up a standard among children and young people of strong, free, courageous womanhood, and to combat the idea that women are inferior to men, and to inspire girls to self-confidence and achievement in athletics, occupations and professions monopolized by men, because the only hope for civilization is the greater freedom, development, and equality of women in all fields of human activity. <laughs> Like, that's like it's 1942. What happened? What happened? So it raises a lot of questions. You see, there's like, that's just so interesting. And then the comics themselves kind of deliver on this. Now, granted, this is a thousand years in the future, but they're very explicitly <laughs> political. And even in private, 
in letters that Marston writes, uh, he makes the same claims. Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who should, I believe, rule the world. Um, so if you just encounter Wonder Woman with no knowledge of anything else except for the comic books and a few pieces of correspondence, it's sort of like, where did this thing come from? Uh, who is Wonder Woman? And I think it's a question that we might really want to take seriously. Because while all other superheroes have secret identities, uh, and so does Wonder Woman, you know, there's Wonder Woman her secretly, she, 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 she disguised herself as a secretary and names herself Diana Prince, which is her kind of Clark Kent. Like, it's one of those great disguises, like, now you can't recognize it. <laughs> um, but she also, like, unlike the other people, she also has a secret history. Her history is unknown. So this is one of my favorite cartoons. So Wonder Woman had a comic strip, too. She wasn't just a comic book. So here's this, this, this newspaper editor wants to get the dope on Wonder Woman. So he sends his reporters to chase her down. She, she takes off. She gets away. She finds out um, this gal's driving me nuts, the editor says, because his reporters haven't been able to track her down. He's so upset that his reporters can't get the story, the secret history of Wonder Woman. He has a breakdown, nervous breakdown. <laughs> I like totally relate to this guy. This is me like on a research mission. So, so Wonder Woman takes pity on him. She disguises herself as a nurse. Here she is, couldn't possibly recognize her here. And, and she brings him this secret scroll, a strange veiled woman left it with me. Um, and he runs back to the office in his hospital, John. He stop the presses, I've got the secret history of Wonder Woman. There's a lot of play like this in the comic. Like, like that there's a big secret that nobody quite knows about Wonder Woman. Um, and there's a, just an awful lot of winking in Wonder Woman that I got really fascinated by. So I decided to sort of try to take the question, who is Wonder Woman, literally, and really figure out what was, at the time I began this work, an utter mystery, which is really who was William Moulton Marston, the man who created Wonder Woman, and why, aside from his public statements, did he create this character? So here he is. He was very adorable in 1894 when he was one. And here is a very handsome Harvard freshman in 1911. Um, the, 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 what I did with Marston to begin with, when I started out, no one knew really hardly anything about him except what was his, his published writings, which are significant but, but are limiting too. But the very first thing I did was when, <laughs> this is a Harvard faculty privilege, I went and pulled his undergraduate record file, <laughs> which was very interesting because he always said he almost killed himself freshman year because he was so unhappy. But he was um, saved by his philosophy professor, George Herbert Palmer, who happened to be the faculty director for the Harvard Men's League for Women's Suffrage, which had just started. And in the fall of 1911, when Marston was a freshman, the Harvard Men's League for Women's Suffrage invited the great British suffragist, Emmeline Pankhurst, to Harvard to speak on campus. She had militarized the suffrage movement in both Britain and the US routinely chaining herself to the gates outside, for instance, 10 Downing Street, inspiring American feminists to do the same, chain themselves to the gates outside the White House, get arrested, go to prison, go on hunger strikes. Harvard, which had just recently walled itself in and which really did not allow Radcliffe girls to come on campus, certainly did not allow women to speak. Women were not allowed to speak at Harvard. And Emmeline Pankhurst was banned at Harvard. She, in defiance, spoke in Harvard Square. Marston went, it was the, sort of an electrifying moment of his freshman year, saved his life, got him passionate about the world and his engagement with the world. And you can see this very story in Wonder Woman. When I say this winking nods in Wonder Woman all the time, Wonder Woman is forever trying to like climb over gates to get into college campuses. <laughs> and they look suspiciously like Harvard. <laughs> and she's always wearing a Harvard sweatshirt. <laughs> 
Um, so the, the, the deeper I looked at Marston's life, the more I realized the secret history to Wonder Woman really lay in his biography. And a lot of it had to do with his would-be wife, a little woman named Elizabeth Holloway. Here they are courting. They'd been known each other since junior high school. Um, she went to Mount Holyoke. You can try to find her here. She's adorable. Uh, they were very much in love, very devoted to one another. They spent a lot of time together. Marston spent a lot of time in Mount Holyoke, which happens to have been a hotbed of the suffrage movement. Mount Holyoke girls were led by college president, Mary Woolley, who was very committed to suffrage, who spoke about it. More than half the student body and pretty much the entire faculty were pro-suffrage. They had mock elections in 1912 when Holloway was a student there, and in 1960, and they had in 1916 and parades. So Marston was very tied to the suffrage movement, if, if only through his fiancée. Meanwhile, at Harvard, he did the work for which he is, in fact, best remembered. Marston is not especially well-known for having created Wonder Woman. He's mostly known for having invented the lie detector as a Harvard undergraduate. He was quite a smart man in 1913 here in Harvard's psychological laboratory, the first experimental psychological laboratory in the United States, uh, where <laughs> was start, started by this guy um, named Hugo Munsterberg, this German scientist who happened to be vehemently opposed to suffrage. And who is Wonder Woman's arch nemesis? And his name is Dr. Psycho in the comic books. You see, I'm trying to just build a case like a prosecution. That the Wonder Woman comics are all about Marston's life. Uh, visually, even, they seem to be very closely related. Uh, Marston, curious guy, was really interested in storytelling through visual forms. Uh, so was Munsterberg. Munsterberg was a big student of, the fil of film, silent movies. He was interested in, he did a lot of psycholo psychological experiments with the movies. So did Marston. Marston then also wrote screenplays. This, uh, oh, the movie I was just going to show you. Isn't okay, so well, I will just elaborate while some, hopefully someone's up there taking care of this. I want to show you a silent film that Marston made um, with D.W. Griffith in 1915 when he was a Harvard undergraduate. So Marston worked his way through Harvard by writing screenplays. Um, this is a still from one of them. And really became fascinated with lying both through the lie detector that he had developed involving like measuring people's blood pressure, but also through this, uh, with the kind of deceit that a film is, the deception that is a film. So this is a, one of Marston's films, it's a guy Fiance visits him in his hotel room only to find that there's a, a woman, a maid, locked in the closet. Now, this is, this is really clumsy foreshadowing on my part. When we get to Marston's three-way marriage, remember this, this, little, this little scene. So Marston married his childhood sweetheart, Elizabeth Holloway. Uh, he goes off to graduate school, he goes to Harvard Law School, and then he goes to get a PhD in psychology from Harvard. His wife, who's every bit as talented as he is, goes to BU for law school. Harvard does not admit women. Uh, she goes to Radcliffe for graduate school. You can't get a PhD from Radcliffe, but Harvard will not allow women to get a PhD. She basically, as she would later say, writes his doctoral dissertation. Not uncommon at the time for women to do most of men's intellectual work and get no credit for it. Still, surprisingly, not uncommon. So you might now say, okay, that's a crazy story about some guy from the 19-teens. What does this have to do about Wonder Woman? Well, this is... Um, how Marston first conceived a Wonder Woman in 1941. These are sketches that were made by the artist H.G. Peter and Marston's debate with him about whether these are, this is a good outfit for her or not. Um, this debate, which is really fun to read, but involves the shoes, which Marston rightly says are just horrible. Right? They're horrible, they're horrible. 
so she gets these terrific boots. But I want to talk for a minute about Wonder Woman as a product of the 1940s because it's so clear when you look at her that she looks like a, you know, Betty Grable pinup girl, right? Like, so we think, okay, Wonder Woman, whatever, this stuff that happened in the 19-teens and his wife and who cares? It's not, this, this is clearly about, you know, the 1940s and Betty Grable and Rosie the Riveter and 1940s porn. Um, this is, before there was Playboy, there was Esquire. This is a centerfold from Esquire. You can see how much Wonder Woman borrows the sort of sexualized, sort of fetishized female, you know, sort of soft porn aesthetic here. Um, this is an alternate conception of her costume. Um, Marston also, who was a big fan of pornography, um, and uh, in the 1940s, George Petty, who was the most famous sort of airbrush centerfold artists of the 1930s and 40s, did these centerfolds um, for True Magazine. And William Moulton Marston, noted author and lecturer on female psychology, wrote the accompanying text about how you could seduce these characters, who all really actually look like superheroes, by the way. And this, this, this you know, it's porn, but porn and superhero costumes for women are the same. So this, this is a poster that Hugh Hefner had on his teenage bedroom wall. This is the inspiration for the Playboy Bunny. I just want to point out, William Moulton Marston has a role in the creation of the Playboy Bunny. This is a heretofore unseen tie. So anyway, Wonder Woman clearly has an aesthetic that comes from 1940s men's pornography. There's also, when you look at the comics themselves, you know, the last thing you're going to see is that Dr. Psycho looks like a long dead German psychology professor at Harvard, right? You're going to say, like, she's tied up and chained up. That's just like kink stuff, right? It's just like, this is just this bondage and fetishism. And it's a thing that people say all the time when they first look at the Wonder Woman comics that Marston wrote in the 1940s. She's chained up all the time. What I want to do now is suggest that these chains are historically important. They're actually. Uh, iconographic reference to the suffrage and birth control movements of the 19-teens. So here is a very well-known and iconic representation of the suffrage movement from Judge Magazine. Lou Rogers is a woman, Annie Lou Caster Rogers. She just used a man's name so she could get published. Did a regular uh, illustration for the pro-suffrage page of Judge Humor Magazine, which was sort of like the New Yorker before the New Yorker. It's a, it's a, it's a little humor magazine that Harold Ross actually worked for before he found in the New Yorker. Suffrage. Uh, artists routinely depicted women tied up because they are borrowing from the iconography of the abolitionist movement, and in order for women to get the right to vote, they had to actually break free of these chains. Uh, another person who did suffrage cartoons for Judge Magazine in the 19-teens is Harry J. G. Peter, who is the old man, the artist that we saw in that earlier picture, who drew Wonder Woman in the 1940s, who was hired by Marston. So when Marston was said, find an artist to draw Wonder Woman, he found a suffrage cartoonist who was like an old, old guy. So when you see Harry G. Peter's art depicting Wonder Woman breaking free of her bonds, which are meant allegorically to represent the tyranny of men, I just want you to see, OK, that is porn in a way, but it is actually also suffrage. <laughs> so again, if you think about Marston's life and you look at the comics, you find a lot of interesting ties. And most of them go back to the 19-teens and to women's political activism in the 19-teens. In suffrage parades, suffrage parades, I don't know why. Someone should could tell me. Suffrage parades, women, women wearing a tiara and a cape, riding a white horse, always led the suffrage parades. So when you see Wonder Woman doing that, like I don't think if you were seven in 1944, you thought, oh, that's from that suffrage parade. But I can see that when I look at those comics. Or if you think about the labor activism of the progressive era, 
And then you see Wonder Woman organizing women department store workers to go on strike. Uh, you see how much these stories that Marston, who's you know midlife man, is drawing on his his youth and telling telling these stories. But the most important of them, most important of these ties, I'm going to skip this, is Wonder Woman's ties to the birth control movement. Marston finished his PhD and ended up teaching at Tufts, which is my alma mater, and I have a terribly embarrassing story to tell about Tufts, so I'm sorry. Here he is in 1926 at graduation. He was a psychology professor there. He's gained a lot of weight, you can see. Um, and here's, over here, EHM is his wife, Elizabeth Holloway Marston. And uh, here is his star student, a young woman named Olive Byrne. She's 22. And over here, mother, this is a photograph that's been labeled by Olive Byrne. That's her mother. Um, it looks like a family photograph, like, like the parents want to say congratulations to the professor and with their student. But you kind of can't figure out who everybody is. Well, her mother over here, Olive Byrne's mother is Ethel Byrne who is Margaret Sanger's sister, and together founded Planned Parenthood in 1916. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Olive Byrne because she's really the most important person in this story. Uh, here she is as a freshman at Tufts with the headband on the, on the left. When she was at Tufts, she joined a sorority which had these really kinky initiation hazing ceremonies. One was called the Baby Party. Um, they did a lot of beating up of each other and spanking, and uh, Marston observed all this, and he and Olive Byrne wrote a scholarly paper about the pleasure that women get from being beaten and from beating others. Um, so it was a big part of their relationship <laughs> <laughs> as scholars. <laughs> uh, so um, Olive Byrne was an extraordinary young woman. She was quite a renegade. She dressed as a boy for a time when she was at Tufts. She won, um, she was voted the most distinctive, wittiest, and cleverest member of her senior class. She founded the Liberal Club at Tufts. She invited Margaret Sanger to speak at Tufts. Sanger was banned, as was as had Emmeline Pankhurst a uh, generation before. And Olive Byrne also worked at Margaret Sanger's uh, birth control clinic in New York and was the conduit for birth control for Tufts women. She brought birth control, <laughs> birth control to Tufts. Um, when Marston fell in love with her during her senior year when she was his student, uh, he decided that he wanted to marry her but still remain married to Elizabeth Holloway. So they decided to join together as a family, as a threesome. They lived the rest of their lives together. They raised their children together. This is a very interesting feature of this story. It has to do with Marston's ideas about female sexuality and male sexuality and female and male psychology. It's so interesting and endlessly interesting that I'm going to sort of set it aside because I really want to talk about the birth control element of this. Um, Margaret Sanger started uh, the first feminist newspaper in 1914, The Woman Rebel. That's where she coined the term birth control and said that it was more important than the ballot for women. She was a suffragist, but she decided that getting birth control was, was far more important. In 1916, when she and Ethel Byrne, her sister, uh, opened the first birth control clinic in the United States in Brooklyn. They were immediately arrested. Here they are in court. Margaret Sanger's on the left. Olive Byrne's mother, Ethel, is on the right. Ethel Byrne was the most famous woman in America at this point. She was tried, found guilty. In imitation of Emmeline Pankhurst, she went on a hunger strike. She was the first woman in the United States to go on a hunger strike. She only, the only reason she didn't die was that Margaret Sanger, without her permission or knowledge, made a deal with the governor of New York that if he would pardon her so she didn't die, she would never again be involved in the birth control movement. That is the only reason that I'm sure you've heard of Margaret Sanger, but I'm sure you've not heard of Ethel Byrne. 
Um, Margaret Sanger went on uh, to do many different kinds of things in the promotion of birth control. Moonlin was publishing a series of different publications. And for the Birth Control Review, she hired Lou Rogers, the great suffragist cartoonist, as her art director, who continued to use this motif of chains, women, women in chains, to talk about their emancipation. So again, when you see these super kinky, slightly porny um, cartoons in Wonder Woman, it's important to remember, I think it's really important to think about the way this iconography speaks to a political movement and not just to pornography. It is a very multifaceted thing. So even this famous image of Margaret Sanger when she walked on a stage in Boston where she'd been prevented from speaking and Arthur Schlesinger read a speech in, Arthur Schlesinger Sr. read a speech uh, in her stead, is there are echoes of these very iconic photographs of Sanger throughout. Um, Marston, uh, Olive Byrne here in the kerchief and his wife had four children together. They summered with Ethel Byrne and Margaret Sanger on Cape Cod. They were immensely close families. So um, when you think about the, the influence of feminism on one woman, Margaret Sanger is essentially these children's grandmother. Marston, after falling in love with Olive Byrne and beginning to establish this family, published his last and most, <laughs> most important work, which is called, called The Emotions of Normal People. I know it's an, it's an incredibly just funny title. Um, <laughs> which uh, was only reviewed by one publication because he had been blacklisted from academia because of his domestic arrangements. He taught at Columbia at the time, and it was found out. Olive Byrne was getting a PhD at Columbia at the time. Their domestic arrangements were discovered. Marston was blacklisted. The book was reviewed nowhere except in one publication where the reviewer was Olive Byrne. Um, <laughs> I have sort of hustled myself up because I can talk about this stuff endlessly. But I, if you can read this quote here, you'll see Marston was, was really quite ahead of his time in his tolerance uh, and his celebration of sexual diversity. Um, it just incredibly broad-minded about homosexuality, transvestitism, things that at the time were unspeakable and were unspeakable in the sense that his academic career was completely ruined by these things. So like many defrocked academics, he fled to Hollywood. <laughs> where wonderfully, he, the first film he worked on was called The Charlatan. Um, and I'm just show you a brief clip because Marston's just too funny to not see. This is a newsreel clip from 1931. Dr. Marston and Emotions. It's 18th of July, 1930, and Dr. William Marston demonstrates complicated device whereby he claims he can determine and compute comparative emotions of blondes, brunettes, and redheads. Says Marston. This is the sphygmomanometer an instrument which measures the subject's blood pressure in the arm. This so I'm sorry, it's too funny we could go on. But what he did was he recycled his lie detector as a love detector. <laughs> and he went to Hollywood and he would like test whether the movies were too exciting or not exciting enough. Okay, so that's our crazy Marston with these ties to the feminism, the suffragism of uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, the feminism and the birth control activism of Margaret Sanger and Ethel Byrne. So we kind of fully circle back now to Wonder Woman and this family that all of them worked on. In fact, this is the entire family. There's another woman I didn't even have time to mention. You were like, who's that other woman? These are the four children and the three mothers. Um, they had this incredibly, fantastically interesting, and I think quite happy domestic life. 
uh, and they all worked on Wonder Woman. They all talk about having, you know, contributed to Wonder Woman. Um, so who is Wonder Woman? Well, she's clearly Marston. She's also Elizabeth Holloway. She very much looks like Olive Byrne here. And her bracelets are Olive Byrne's. Olive Byrne wore those bracelets. This earring is Olive Byrne's. She looks a lot like Margaret Sanger, who also looks a lot like Olive Byrne. But I've shown you all the many ways in which the stories themselves are a callback to the 19-teens and women's progressive era activism. Um, so what happened to Wonder Woman? Well, unfortunately, William Moulton Marston contracted polio in 1944, and he died in 1947. And at that point, Wonder Woman was left to other writers in DC Comics who pretty much hated the character because she was a woman and they didn't know what to do with her, so they domesticated her. Um, she lost her awesome red kinky boots and got these dumb ballet shoes. And she's like swooning and helpless all the time in the 1950s. She like starts a romance column. In the 1960s, they sort of Diana Rigg avenge her. Um, this is trying to be like mod, but also sort of feminist. And like it totally fell apart. It was a disaster. Um, but what, what really, what leads to that Linda Carter moment is Gloria Steinem and other women who are uh, engaged in and leading the women's liberation movement recall reading Wonder Woman in the 1940s when they were kids. Steinem was really influenced by reading Wonder Woman when she was a kid. And they start using Wonder Woman as an icon of the women's liberation movement. So Steinem, as you know, worked for New York Magazine. This is Wonder Woman recast. She's fighting rapists here. She's fighting smug liberals, in fact, but who are also rapists. Um, then there's this great underground feminist comics movement. This is a comic from 1970. And um, these comic book artists take stock characters from the 1930s and tell stories in which they take them out of their stock plot. So here's Sheena the Jungle Queen and olive oil. And do you remember little Lulu here in the little red dress? So this is my favorite from this 1970 moment. Uh, Lulu wants to play with Iggy, and he says, no girls allowed. She stops, and she thinks about that. And then, you know, in this one frame that sums up pretty much how I very often feel. <clears throat> this is very much the spirit in which Wonder Woman is resurrected by feminists in the women's liberation movement. Um, Stein, Gloria Steinem puts her on the cover of Ms. Magazine, its first regular issue in 1972. Then it's kind of off to the races. This is one of my other big favorites, this women's health newsletter where Wonder Woman is wielding a speculum, and she says, with my speculum, I can fight, and on the inside, there are instructions to conduct a vaginal self-exam. Uh, Wonder Woman joins Nixon's cabinet. Uh, there's all kinds of, I'm, now I'm just going to race through because I want to leave time for questions. Um, there's all kinds of Wonder Woman shtick ever since. There's a 70s moment where Wonder Woman is, you know, becomes so mainstream and like women's liberation is so co-opted co in a sense by commercial forces that she becomes mainstream enough to have this ABC TV series. Uh, there's a similar moment going on now where Wonder Woman is, uh, is popular in a kind of main, mainstream way very much unmoored from her feminist origins in the 19-teens. Um, in, for instance, there's a reboot of the character in 2012 where uh, that Wonder Woman was opposed to guns and violence is, I think, quite lost in the, like, the new form, what it is to be sexy, like the porn of the comics is all about the kind of militarization of Wonder Woman, um, sort of like the equivalent of the militarized, you know, small town police force. Um, there have been a lot of superhero movies made quite recently and more coming out. Many people have noticed that there have been a lot of movies about uh, Superman and many about Batman, and there's just really only this one Wonder Woman TV show. 
uh, even though Wonder Woman had that kind of status. Next month, two months from now, um, the, the first of what is projected to be a series of films about the Justice Society is being released. It is, then it's called Batman and Superman, gives you some sense of Wonder Woman's place in it. She's cast in it. Here is this, you, you'll, you'll, I think she has a role in it. Um, but it's this militarized uh, superwoman, not this feminist uh, allegorical woman fighting for women's rights that goes that we can trace back to the 19-teens, which I think is a really important and interesting moment. We think, um, you know, the reason that DC Comics asked that question, should Wonder Woman, even though a woman be allowed to join the Justice Society, is because in the 1930s, Gallup asked, beginning in 1937 every year, should a woman, if she were otherwise qualified, be allowed to run for president? Or, you know, would you vote for a woman for president if she were otherwise qualified? Um, Wonder Woman was a kind of political, a cultural experiment of that political question, um, and that the, the place that she goes over that last century is into a sort of a kind of pornography that's just an updated version of the 1930s and 40s porn, uh, and that has stripped away the pacifism, the feminism, the political activism, the commitment to labor, uh, the labor struggle, uh, is a really interesting transformation, because that's not the Wonder Woman that Marston created. And, and all superheroes are updated and reimagined. I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but just the trajectory itself is very illuminating. The one thing I want to say um, before closing and, and, and taking questions, I think I might have a couple more slides on this, uh, is that a reason that I, I want to just say two things. One, one thing is about how I came to this project. So because I'm not a comic book reader or I wasn't really kind of wrapped up in the cult of Wonder Woman, I happened to be working on two projects a few years ago. One was I was writing a long essay, an investigative piece for the New Yorker magazine where I write about Planned Parenthood in 2011 when the last uh, presidential campaign cycle, Planned Parenthood had a big role in that campaign cycle, not as big as it has had this time around with those videos that people you know, talked about at all the debates. Um, you guys are not junkies because you'd be home like watching the underdog debate right now, right? <laughs> so all my political illusions are just, you're like, what? A democratic debate? What's the debate? Anyway, in 2011, if you're running as a Republican for the president of the United States, it was really necessary to sign the Susan B. Anthony Pledge, which said, if elected president, I will defund Planned Parenthood. Which was really interesting and sort of curious. Like, well, why? Well, like, why exactly? So I, I went to the Smith College archives where Planned Parenthood papers are, and Margaret Sanger's papers are also there. And I did a ton of research there. Meanwhile, I was writing a, a research paper for the Yale Law School for its legal history workshop on the history of the lie detector, because I'm really interested in privacy and technology. So I was doing all this work with William Moulton Marston. And while I was at Smith, I kept coming across letters from this woman, Olive Byrne, who I knew was the mistress of William Moulton Marston. And then I would go back to Smith and say, but, but, <laughs> and then he created Wonder Woman. And, and so finally, I just was like, I had this kind of moment in the arc. I was like, oh my God, Wonder Woman is Margaret Sanger. Like, <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, oh crap, I have to write a book about that because like, people should know that. Like, that's, that's kind of a helpful thing to know. And so the last thing I want to say, the reason that's a helpful thing to know is that we have a really, I think, sorry misunderstanding of the history of women's rights in this country. It's a kind of popular motif where this wave theory, the wave theory. So there's this first wave, like in 1848, Seneca Falls, women declare the, you know, their right to vote. There's this important declaration of women's rights. That begins the first wave. 
which ends in 1920 with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Now women have the right to vote. The first wave is over. Then there's this like long lull where nothing, nothing happens until, you know, 1963 and Famine Mystique comes out and then, you know, then Gloria Steinem writes and, and then Wonder Woman is there. And that's the second wave. And then, you know, there's like, I don't know what wave Lena Dunham is or, but there, you know, it's like, there are these waves. And it's like, seriously, is that like, because all those people in the 30s and 40s and 50s just didn't give a crap about equality? So <clears throat> when you think about Wonder Woman, which starts in 1941, and is inspired by all that feminism and suffrage from the so-called first wave, and then goes on to inspire Steinem and these other people from the so-called second wave, there are no waves. This is just a continuous struggle for political equality and for economic equality for, for women and men. And it's an unfortunate consequence. The reason those ties between the Marston family and the Sanger family were kept secret was because it was an incredible scandal. They could not let it be known that Marston had, was kind of sort of also married to Margaret Sanger's niece. Like it, it just, it had to be a secret. No one could know. Um, and what I found out and came across by happenstance and then through the incredible generosity of the Marston family, three of the Marston's children are still alive and the, the widow of the fourth is still alive. You know, all of them spoke to me, showed this incredible amount of family materials to me that they had never shared with anybody because the family story is very controversial. Uh, it, I mean, less controversial now than it was in 1928 when Marston was fired from Columbia, but it is hard stuff. So the weird thing, the sort of unusual course of history in which this really important political history was like hidden from view because it was a family secret uh, was what led me to write the book. So thank you very much. So if people have, if people have questions, I would just ask that you come to the mic. There's a mic in either aisle so that uh, people could hear enough. I think if you're upstairs, you're out of luck. I'm sorry. That's the silenced multitude. Hi. First, I'd like to say I liked your book very much. Thanks. Uh, I was wondering what you thought of the fact that in the 1970s, uh, Denny O'Neill, uh, who took over Wonder Woman, thought it would be a swell idea to empower a woman by taking her power away. And um, the fact that most of the people who've worked on Wonder Woman throughout the history of her existence have been almost exclusively men. Uh, even in the 1940s, there were a great number of female creators in comic books and within the industry that never got to touch Wonder Woman. I was wondering what you thought of Yeah, that. yeah, thanks for that question. Thereby revealing how much more you know about the history of comics than I do. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it is true that uh, pretty much every writer and artist after Harry G. Peter and, and Marston has very much struggled with the character. And most of them really just didn't like her. They also didn't like the things that Marston had introduced and they didn't know what to do with them and so they've eliminated them. I mean, I think most recently, I haven't seen the comic book recently, but I've heard that it's really important to Wonder Woman's origin story that she was born of a woman. Um, her, her, her mother's the queen of the Amazons and she makes her out of clay. Uh, well, you know, that had to go because they needed her to be the daughter of Zeus. So now she has a father and she's Superman's girlfriend. Like the, the desire, what, whatever it comes from unconscious or not to sort of disempower her 
It just, it just happens again and again and again and again and again. Anything about the character that is overtly feminist is stripped away. And when there are like allegedly feminist elements, like she's tough. Well, I don't, I don't find that like that. Like the military, that doesn't, that doesn't, that is not powerful to me. Or like the, the form that her power uh, people are comfortable with is a, is a sexual power. Uh, which, I don't know, I don't think women need more sexual power. I think we need more political power, so it doesn't really excite me. But I, the one thing I do want to say is a quite unsung person in this story, uh, there, there, there are three. There are four. <laughs> one is Dorothy Rubichek, who was an editor at DC Comics, uh, who, edited, who edited Wonder Woman and was a really important influence on the character. Uh, I interviewed her daughter. I spent a lot of time reading Rubicek's papers. She wrote to Gloria Steinem after Gloria Steinem resurrected her. Uh, she was a really interesting person and a really important influence on Wonder Woman in the 1940s. She was supposed to be the new writer when the reboot happened in 1972, and she was fired because she was too much of a feminist. Um, Joy Hummel, who Marston had as a student at the Catherine Gibbs School, she was 19 years old in 1944 and hired her as his assistant because he didn't know how to write slang that young people would enjoy. Um, he, three months after he hired her, he got polio. She wrote a good half of the Wonder Woman comics between 1944 and 1947. Uncredited, she was paid $50 a story. Um, and then she got married and disappeared. I found her, she's still alive, she's in Florida, she's 91, she's an incredible woman, she's a pistol, she's a great grandmother, she has, she showed, I went down to see her, she pulled out, I have my appointment book, and she had like, met Dr. Marston, worked on episode four, um, we, you know, she, and like her, all of her receipts, she had kept all this stuff for years, and I was like, people would love, you know, what, and she's like, I just didn't, I wanted my privacy which I can't respect a person more than the person who says that. Um, she did, though, very generously, incredibly generously, donate her entire archive of comics, her correspondence with the Marstons, to um, the Smithsonian. So now it's there. So now, hopefully, her work will be chronicled. Um, I said there were four. Another is uh, Alice Marble, the great female tennis champion from the 90, 1940s who was the associate editor of Wonder Woman. Um, it was largely an honorary role, but she was involved in the promotion of the comic in a really interesting way. Um, and then um, uh, Loretta, whose name I can now not even remember, the woman whose papers are at Brooklyn, sorry, somebody just call her. The woman whose papers are at Brooklyn College, who's a, a very important psychiatrist at um, Bellevue Hospital, who was a consultant for the comic, um, and who argued against its suppression when editorial advisory board said, you know what, it's just, it's too kinky, it's too weird. She's like, it's not, it's really important work. Uh, yes. Actually, yeah, that's, I've been reading the first 10 issues of the book that's called Wonder Woman, not the other comic that she started out in. And what was really has been astounding to me is just how feminist, I mean, literally feminist, the comic book is, and its dialogue is. There's, there's the end of one episode that I'm reading where uh, uh, Wonder Woman defeats a villainess. And in the last couple of panels, she's saying to her, uh, you're not evil. You are, being, you are economically dependent upon an evil man. You need to go out and get a job. She literally says this. <laughs> get a job and, 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 and you know, work with your country against the Nazis. And my question is, and that's in every issue, you get stuff like that. Did anybody notice? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the Catholic Church banned it, among other things. You know, like, it, it was very controversial. It was much noticed. It had millions and millions of readers. It was a much-talked-about thing. Um, 
if you go back and read the issues, unless you buy the actual original intact issues, what you don't see is that Wonder Woman, the Wonder Woman book, not the comic books in which she also appeared, had a four-page centerfold in every issue called The Wonder Woman of History. It was a comic book, like a graph, little mini graphic novel biography of an important woman, you know, um, Susan B. Anthony or Sojourner Truth. Uh, it's incredible that these are in there. Alice Marvel goes around the country talking to women of achievement, saying, who do you think we should profile next in Wonder Woman of History? It's a big deal. And it's, it's forgotten, and it is not thought of as such a big deal, to be, to be completely candid, because comic book, the comic book world is largely men. Comic book fans, people that write about and blog about comic books. Is, I mean, there's a lot of feminism among comic book people, and there's, there's a lot of women involved in comics now. Um, but it, that this could have gone largely unnoticed for so long uh, is really interesting. But you can see how much it meant to the women's liberation movement. Yeah, I'm going to move on to make sure I get a woman to ask a question before we run out of time. No, that's very chivalrous of you. No, but go ahead. No, I thought you were asking No, 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 we'll have first. time. Okay. Um, I keep thinking that there's a tremendously fascinating documentary here that uh, uh, the story needs to be told. And as someone who'd probably be your brother's friend, I'm wondering what, if you've had any, any contact, I know it's a simplistic question, what's Linda Carter's impression of all this? And have you had any contact with her as, as the individual who, who brought the icon to life, even as watered down as it was? Yeah. Um, no, I've never met Linda Carter. Um, she's met the Marston, so I hear stories about her from them. Uh, I, you know, she's apparently quite an amazing woman. Um, I, I haven't heard from her about the book, and I didn't approach her in any way. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, the more powerful, I mean, she's an important part of this story, but like Joy Hummel, like there really needs to be a really good oral history taken with her immediately, you know, yesterday. Um, that's the kind of thing that I, I would feel really urgent about. I think Linda Carter's been on tape a lot, talking about what this character means in, to American culture and meant to her and meant to her fans. Uh, it's the unsung, unsung people that I really want to hear more about. Yeah. Hi, this is fabulous. Um, I was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1941, and I loved Wonder Woman. Now, you'll have to give me the chronology exactly. But I was probably reading her in 51, 52, maybe earlier. I don't have the greatest short-term memory now, but I have a fine long-term memory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I vividly remember reading where the communists made people pave streets in Russia. Uh -huh. And Wonder Woman came in, now this is Fort Worth, Texas, Wonder Woman swooped down in my page and pulled the street roller uh -huh. and saved the women People, from yeah. paving the streets. I know I didn't make it up. Can you put it in a context? Yeah, I love that story. Um, that is just so great. Thank you for that. So um, I swear to God, there are people who would now say, that was 1952, episode 5B, you know, the curse of the great pavement crack or something. Um, and I, that's, that's totally not me. What I will say is that, you know, many superhero comics declined and went out of print after the end of the Second World War because many of the superheroes were fighting Nazis and their greatest moments came from that. So Wonder Woman debuts, you know, a couple months after Captain America. That's why she wears an American flag because he wears an American flag. This is really 
uh, you know, patriotic fervor right at the eve of American entry into the war, and then throughout the war, and the Justice Society's off, you know, fighting Nazis. The war ends, a lot of those superheroes stop publishing, and those that remain in print sort of struggle with who to fight for. It's like at the end of the Cold War, like, we still have James Bond movies, is it gonna be about terrorism? What are we gonna, is it gonna be about the NSA? Like, who's the enemy? Um, so there is a lot of kind of communists, there's a kind of Cold War era of those comics. Um, this is a, it's, a, it's a diluted group of uh, superheroes. Um, that's an unusually forceful tale for the, compared to other stories from the 1950s I've seen. And one possibility that I will just float because I didn't know. So Elizabeth Holloway Marston, when Marston died, she wrote this long letter to Jack Leibowitz, who was the head of DC Comics in 1948. It's an incredibly good letter. She's like, look, you gotta hire me because these bozos you have writing the character are just making her ridiculous. And, and like, I know the character. Also, remember, I kind of wrote Bill's dissertation. And, you know, I've really, I've written most of what he claimed is, like, she, she sort of intimates that she has played a very big role in the development of Wonder Woman, which is doubtless true. Um, and then there's this horrible note from Leibowitz to, you know, the, the new editor saying, take the old lady out for lunch and ruffle her feather. You know, it's just like gross, it's gross. So they shut her up, but when I interviewed people at DC Comics who worked there throughout the 50s and 60s, they said, you know, that they would hide under their desks when she came into the office because that woman was a force of nature. So I can imagine her, and she, she then sent, she made this, I don't know, like 20 page memo, how to write Wonder Woman. <laughs> She's like, you can't say things like, Oh, by Vulcan's hammer, whatever. You have to say, by Aphrodite's girdle. Or, you know, like, like you can't say, God damn it. You have to say, suffering Sappho, or merciful Minerva. Like, she had these rules. She's like, if you're gonna, if I can't do it, you gotta at least follow my rules. And there were things in there, like, when you can use the invisible plane and when you can't. Like, so I think that, like, that kind of, that's the kind of story that Marston would have written and that Holloway Marston would have really liked. So I wonder if her influence wasn't, in fact, still felt more than we know into the 50s? Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really fascinating. Um, you talked about the fact that there aren't waves of feminism, but there are certainly periods where it goes underground. I mean, when I, and notably, you didn't show Wonder Woman in the 80s or 90s, kind of when I was growing up. Yeah. There was no, you know, yeah. feminism was a dirty word. So I'm wondering what you're saying about the current iteration of Wonder Woman. Um, you mean whether it allies or doesn't ally with a period of, Feminist agitation? Correct. Um, <laughs> and why not? Since there does seem to be sort of a rise. Yeah. And it's okay to say you're a feminist now. It is. Even it Taylor is. As Swift long as you're a, As long as you're a sex positive feminist. Yeah, right. Which I think means that you think that it's good to, that we, we women should be fighting for more sexual power. <laughs> or like the expression of sexual power as a form of political power, which I just don't believe at all. That, to me, it makes me feel ancient, like generationally, that I don't. Um, sex negative. I mean, yeah, like I'm not a sex negative feminist. <laughs> but like that, that is actually like it, it um, the most effective feminism going on at the moment to me is all in comedy. Um, like there's just incredible feminist humor that's not necessarily pitched as such, but which is just incredibly powerful and I think really, really, really effective. Um, I think what passes for feminism as politics is is it tends to be cheaper and 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 also less effective. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there were there are a lot of people who say, oh, I don't know. I get like media 
media requests all the time. Can you talk about the great feminist movement when because of the Hunger Games? And I'm just like, I don't, I don't see it. I don't, I don't, do you see that? People Jennifer, you mean the Hunger Games as a feminist icon? Yeah, that there's like that there are that there are women in um, doing daring things in action movies, and they might even be title characters. Or yeah, no, I, I mean, I, it's not that it's a bad thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the Hunger Games, but like, I, I'm not sure that I totally get that that's changing the world. Um, like, can, I think can Wonder Woman I think do it? Broad City's changing the world world more than the Hunger Games. Like yes. in that in that way. Like I like I think that's actually really important work. Like it's also good, but it's. I think that's like just a really cool thing. Um, Thanks. Yes. Yeah, I'll repeat the question because I know you want to get it on the recording. The question was, um, could I comment on Elizabeth and Olive's relationship? Marston died in 1947. They lived together the rest of their lives. Olive Byrne died in I think 1988, and Elizabeth Holloway Marston in 19, 1993. So they lived together, you know, for decades. They were inseparable. Um, you know, they were grandmothers together. They had four children, and their children had children, so they were grandmothers to all of those children. Um, a frustrating thing as a historian is when people live together, like, so Olive Byrne moved in when she was 22 and never moved out until the day of her death. Um, when people live with other people, they don't write them letters. So actually, intimate relations are some of the hardest to chronicle. And um, I am a not, I'm not a believer in speculation as a historian. And I also feel that people's private lives are, in fact, their private lives. So I think a different historian looking at all the assembled circumstantial evidence, we might call it, would say, oh, there's clearly, there must have been a sexual relationship between those two women in addition to the romantic relationship that's clear. I mean, they loved one another. And the family relationship, you know, they're deep, deep ties as family members. Um, and you would just sort of adduce that and say, well, of course. Um, I didn't mention the cult of female sexual power that they founded in 1925 that met secretly. And I found the minutes of the meetings. <laughs> um, so I would say I have more than circumstantial evidence. Um, on the other hand, I asked the children these questions, and um, you know, the children in their 80s. And I also had to ask the children like the awkward question like, so there's a lot of bondage in the comics, and everything in the comics seems to come from uh, Marston's life. And what do you make of that? <laughs> and they would be like, do you mean, did the ladies tie him up to the bedpost? <laughs> yeah, that's just what I was trying to. <laughs> Uh, you know, like, you had to ask, right? Like, you can't say, um, and people be like, you know, no, that, you know, that didn't, but, but there was a ton of secrecy in the family. I mean, the family was incredible, like, different, one of the really interesting things about the family is that there's no way to tell a story of this family that sounds true to each branch of the family. I'm the youngest of four, and I swear, we have the most boring family, but there's probably no way to tell a story about my family that would sound true to all four of us, like, I think this happened that day when the kid fell out of the window trying to get the piece of gum from the downstairs window. Like, I just, people don't agree. We don't agree about what happened. Um, in the Marston family, each kid was told something different, even about who their parents were. And then when Elizabeth Holloway Marston went through the, like, family photos in the 1970s, because she was giving stuff to the Smithsonian, she made an album for each kid. And they have 
completely different photographs in them. So, like if you were to just look at one, you'd, be, you'd think the family was, worked kind of like this. You'd think Elizabeth Holloway really was not very involved as a parent. She worked full time, she worked from seven, you know, she went to work on the train at seven in the morning. She was really an absentee member of the family. You never see her in the photograph. And then you look at another of them and she's in all the photographs and like, where's Olive Byrne? Um, but meanwhile, just to give you a sense of the level of deceit, Olive Byrne uh, took a job as a staff writer for Family Circle magazine in 1935 when it's, it started in 1932. It's a grocery store giveaway for housewives during the Depression, how to make deals. And, and she wrote a regular column under a pen name. And in the column, what she routinely did would say, I took the train to Rye, New York to visit the home of world-renowned consulting psychologist William Moulton Marston to say to him, one of my sons is always lying. What should I do with a boy who won't tell the truth? And then they have this little flirty exchange, and then she takes the train home and like disciplines her sons. It's very funny, because she lives in that house. Those are his sons. Um, but they thought that was just funny. Like, they had no problem with lying. With just, they would just lie up and down. Um, so I think they, they told different things to the kids, and, the, and, and then they died. And so, you know, then Marston died. So um, what, ha what doesn't even happen until 1963, um, one of the sons says uh, that he's going to sue his mother uh, if she won't tell him what really happened. Like, who was really with whom? Like, I know where everybody slept and how the bedrooms worked, because <laughs> I got like a map of the house. Um, and so Elizabeth Holloway Marston writes this long letter, and she says, you know, um, Mimi and Ethel believed in free love, which is Mimi is Margaret Sanger and Ethel is, you know, Oliver and mother, believed in free love. They were like free love radicals in the 19-teens. But we decided that didn't work. We believe in marriage. So we set up our marriage this way. Like, so there's, there's not even anything until 1963 that really says this is how we lived. Are we, I think we're at time. So thank you all very, very much. Good evening, everyone. I just I want to thank you again for joining us tonight, and a huge thank you to, to Jill Lapore, Dr. Jill Lapore, for being here with us tonight. Um, so, uh, just just to remind everybody that there will be a book signing. It's going to be in our Smith Gallery by the Batmobile. Um, we don't have Wonder Woman's car, but we do have the Batmobile, so that's where oh, she'll be signed. By the invisible plane. <laughs> But uh, the books are for sale in our museum store. The museum store is on our 77th Street side. And before you go, I just want to mention, uh, while I'm up here, um, because we were talking about this today, actually, is a year from now, there's a lot to look forward to. We're going to be opening a Center for Women's History on our fourth floor. Uh, so stay tuned. Um, because there's going to be a lot of exciting programming and exhibitions related to that in the future. So uh, thank you all again for coming. Have a good night.